Welcome to the Supercharge Your Startup podcast, just one of the ways the OVH Cloud Startup Program are connecting members with our network of exciting enablers and startups as part of our Fast Forward Accelerator. We're here to help accelerate your growth by sharing expert advice and insights from our ecosystem that will take your business to the next level. I'm your host, Juliet Otterburn-Hall, entrepreneur and startup consultant. In today's episode, we will be deep diving into a tricky issue that many startups have to overcome, tech recruitment. Joining me in the studio today is founder Courtney Robinson, who has been through the OVH Cloud startup program with his venture, Hippie, a development platform for startups that enables them to develop low-code web and development apps effortlessly. As a founder with great technical expertise, Courtney is well-versed in understanding and overcoming many of the challenges of tech recruitment. Courtney, welcome to the studio. It'd be great if you could just talk us through some of the issues you've experienced. Certainly. So I, I think one of the biggest challenges, at least that we found, is finding people in our in our own network. A lot of the people that we know already have like pretty solid paying jobs. And so it's hard to recruit from our own network because they already have jobs that most of them don't want to really leave for a risky startup. And so that leaves us with only a few options, really. It's either we get like a, a freelancer, which we have actually done quite a lot of, or we go through recruiters, which becomes quite expensive for a startup. The rest of it, you know, you, you post a job and it's it's taking a shot in the dark almost. So we've had a tough time at it. We've spent a lot more time with freelancers and a few of them we've effectively eventually converted over to being full-time employees. And that's kind of the strategy that's worked for us. Whether that keeps going, I don't know, but up to, up to this point, that's what we've been able to do to kind of get around the issue of not having enough money to basically spend on recruiters and not having a big enough network with people that are willing to leave high paying jobs, basically. It's a, it's a common factor. You see it in, in so many startups. So do you go for getting on a CTO first and then hope that they'll come in with some sort of team that they can you know, convince because of who they are? Or do you go for the sort of more junior people and then hope that they'll then come through the ranks because you can afford to pay them and then you develop them a little bit more? What sort of do you think is the ideal scenario to get the right people in to do what you need them to do? It's more of the latter for us, uh, although I think it depends on on your circumstances. If you've raised enough to be able to afford hiring a CTO, it may be worth exploring that. But if you've only raised a small amount of capital or if you haven't raised anything and you're bootstrapping or the, the business is doing well enough for you to be able to hire people, but not necessarily a CTO, I think the CTO route is for startups that can afford it. For us, we haven't raised a huge amount of money, not enough that we would spend on a CTO. And so we, we opted to start from uh, hiring more junior developers. And there's also a pragmatic thing to it as well. When we raised our funding, we didn't have our no-code product. We had a, a low-code product and we were starting development on our no-code product. And so there was going to be quite a lot of development that needed to be done. And it depends on the kind of CTO that you get. You could get a CTO that's very hands-off, doesn't do much or, if, uh, or any coding at all, or you could get someone that's very hands-on. But for us, it made more sense to focus on getting developers to help deliver that roadmap so we could then take the product to market. Um, so I, I think a number of factors in, influence which of those routes you take. 
and uh, we ended up going for the uh, developer first. And we'll hopefully we have we still don't have uh, a CTO that we've explicitly hired. So I've kind of played that role up to this point. But we might move into hiring a dedicated CTO uh, next year. A really tricky situation, isn't it? When you've got to develop something, particularly if you're going into the no code or something in a very sort of techy heavy platform or, or deliverable. And if you haven't quite got the knowledge, perhaps yourself as a CEO or as, as a founder, how do you actually test the people that you're talking to to know that they're actually going to be able to deliver what you need them to do, even though you might not be totally sure yourself what exactly it is that you need them to do? Uh, it's it's tough. Um, and I think if you're a non-technical founder, a non-technical CEO, I honestly don't know how you can navigate that well without trial and error. Because the, the, the problem is what, what you stated, right? So if you don't know what you need, how can you ask someone else for what you need, right? Um, exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real chicken and egg problem. And um, I think that's also why uh, platforms like Hippies are important for those kind of founders, because it would allow them to maybe take an early version of the product to market uh, before they need to get a CTO on board or somebody that's more technical. But if you don't have a solution like that, I, I don't know if there's any other way to do it other than through trial and error. And, and tell me a bit about, about your platform then. So if you've got a way of helping other companies not have to go through the pain of developing everything themselves, is that what your platform's offering? Or, or what, what, what are you doing to be able to help those other startups get further ahead without going through some of those difficulties? Right. So there are actually two big pieces to the platform. The buzzwords, if you're going to use them, would be low code and, and no code. Um, the product that we started with first is a low code platform. And that's targeted at developers. The idea there is to try and help one developer basically improve the amount of deliverables that a single developer can get through the door, right? So if you have the budget and you've already hired a, a developer, then we can help that developer to be more efficient, produce more uh, without you having to hire a second developer. Where we're tending towards, and I think a large part of the industry is tending towards, is where you have more people that are... Um, somewhat technical in that they can logically reason, they can use a computer, but they're not necessarily software engineers. And uh, that's where our no-code product comes into play. So it would give you um, a presentation style interface where you drag and drop different components onto a screen and you build that screen out yourself. Um, that's kind of where the market is uh, right now for the, for the most part. Um, and what Hippie does is it gives you this drag and drop interface that allows you to put together your idea. So, you know, if you're a non-technical CEO and you'd like to prototype your idea to test it, to bring it to market, then you could basically use Hippie, drag and drop, create something, get that to market, get that to early customers, test that. And then once you've gotten past your kind of testing phase, you can then bring in more technical talent or bring in a CTO that we referred to earlier. So that's kind of where the no-code platform then comes in for people who are less technical but are able to logically reason about the problem that they have. They can use a no-code solution like Hippies to drag and drop and put together the application to take that to market. You know, get an initial version to test the idea, get initial feedback from customers and so on. And then after they've done that, they can then bring in uh, more technical talent to be able to uh, scale it up and then effectively 
hopefully for them, raise funding or, or scale on its own. That's where the market is right now. But actually, one of the things that Pippi and I, I know at least one other uh, no-code startup that's working on is bringing AI into the mix where you don't even have to do the drag and drop anymore. So, you know, imagine you're a plumber. You could sit down at the computer and just open the Hippie editor and say, all right, my business is that I'm a plumber. I have customers that needs to uh, book appointments with me. I need to be able to correspond with them. And you give a, a, a plain English description of, of what problem you're having. And then the AI would take that and then generate the application for you. So you don't even need to do the drag and drop anymore. And that's something that we're working on right now. And we're looking to get early access open at the end of this year and to mature that into the early part of next year. Wow, it sounds like a really good solution. I guess in building that platform, though, you really needed to have a team of people that really knew what they were doing. And if your network was quite small to start with, then how did you get about that? So you had enough of a level of talent that would kind of be able to create that for other people to be able to, you know, to, to use something that was going to provide them with a tech solution. Yeah. So, I mean, for us, we were fortunate because I'm a software engineer by trade. So this is what I've, I've been doing since I entered the job market. And so a lot of the tech that we have, I've either participated heavily in building it myself or I've directed the freelancers or other staff that we've hired to be able to build it. Right now, the, the AI portion that I just mentioned, um, we don't have the budget to be able to bring in a machine learning expert. So I spent a couple of weeks learning what I needed to and then just dived in and uh, we're looking to get that uh, ready for customers towards the end of this year. So I've been able to build most of it because I've got an engineering background, but I imagine for other startups that may not be the path that they would end up taking. Wow, so that really is your area of expertise. And how do you filter the good candidates from all the applicants? How do you separate the wheat from the chaff? I think the challenge will be how they judge quality because they won't be able to look at the code and evaluate it. So what I've seen some people do is they would get someone in, they'll do a, a mock kind of project and they'll ask them to produce something. And the only thing that you as a startup gives to them is here's the problem and you leave it at that and you leave them to come up with a solution. Because in practice, once you hire them, that's what you're gonna be doing. If you're a non-technical person, you won't be able to direct them to find a solution or you know, say, use this technology, look at this other technology. All you'll have is a problem, and you need to be able to say to that person, here's the problem the business is having. I'd like you to investigate, come up with some options, and then explain those options to me in layman's terms so that I can understand what the caveats are, what the pros and cons are of each option. And then we can decide together which route we take moving forward. And that person is then able to go off and, and you know implement that solution. So that's the option that I've seen some people opt for. Is that then a bit like having a kind of black box of, uh, of magic that you're sort of saying, here you are, come up with something, come back to me. I don't exactly know what you've done, but that's okay. Or how, how do you verify or, or make sure that actually you have something of quality that isn't been, hasn't been, I don't know, taken from another source or you know, manipulated in a way that doesn't agree with the kind of values of the company and what you're trying to build? 
I think there's always going to be that risk because if you're a non-technical founder, you don't have any way of knowing otherwise. And that's why trust is going to be super important between you and this person, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's a massive risk involved. And I think that the, the only thing you can do is to incentivize that person not to basically go steal code from somewhere that isn't properly licensed for you to be able to use it or to just go off and, you know, get something that probably won't be able to uh, do the job longer term, etc. Um, you, you need to be able to think of other ways to incentivize them not to be able to do that. Because as a non-technical founder, you, you have really no way of being able to verify. So you're going to have to take their word for it. And in, in that sense, it is going to be a black box. But I think if you manage to get the balance between incentive and what you're asking them for, most people that you would hire, you know, most of them are not going to be dishonest and try and get something sneaky through the door. But I think really from a non-technical founder's perspective, it's going to be a matter of how you incentivize them. And an incentive doesn't always have to be in cash. It doesn't always have to be in shares either. There are other creative ways to incentivize people. Things that come to mind would include, for example, uh, if you don't, as a startup, we're always lacking money. And if you're trying to get someone on that's willing to do the work, but you don't necessarily have the cash to pay them up front, you could basically, for example, say if they were going to be paid a thousand pounds, you could pay them 1500 pounds, but you would pay them after you've raised some additional uh, funding. That'd be one thing to explore. And we've actually done something similar. The other thing that I would try and recommend is if you can find students that are basically either looking for a placement year or they've just finished and they're looking for, for their first job, if you're willing to put the time uh, and investment in, into that person to get them to build up their skill level and, and work with them, you may be able to negotiate a deal with them where you would basically pay them again in arrears. That's something that we've done, for example, uh, so we actually have one graduate on now that has worked with us for several months and we're going to be basically back paying them. That's one other thing. And then I, I mentioned this earlier, but when you're hiring, it can work as a, a way to build trust by figuring out what is useful to someone. But you could also use that as a way to uh, compensate them. So Let's imagine someone who's really big on vacations, right? As part of a package, you could say, we could offer you to, you know, pay for your vacation, for example, once or twice a year, uh, for example, within a certain budget. And that becomes part of the compensation scheme. So I don't think there's a, a full exhaustive list that I could give you, but those are some of the things that come to mind on how you could potentially incentivize the people that you're looking to bring on. But that's also going to come down to you uh, being able to communicate with them, find out what their motivations are, find out what their goals are, and then how can you and the business help them to achieve those. And if your goals are aligned with theirs, then I think most people will be motivated to stay on side. And that's that's really the only way I can think of you as a non-technical founder navigating that. So if you're a technical founder, then the way to do it is obviously to use the people or connect with people you already work with. So you've got that kind of recommendation or word of mouth. And for a non-technical founder, 
presumably it's it's something similar, but with an ele- element slightly element more of trust or of, of finding those people who are maybe getting someone else in who can also validate who's perhaps got some more experience in that space than, than you might have. Not in your case, obviously, because you're technically minded. I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The, the, the whole um, personal network thing is important, but this comes on to something else where, like for us, for example, my, myself and uh, Damien, who's my co-founder, um, we have a network, but that network, most people that we know are actually not in tech. Um, they might be small business owners or they might just have an everyday nine to five job, etc. And so we really had very little in the way of a network in the tech space. Um, and if you're a non-technical founder, having a network like ours and trying to build a tech product, it makes the problem even more difficult because we'd need to, or they would be, need to be a bit more creative because the network just isn't going to pan out, I think, for a large portion of people. Another way of doing it is looking at education establishments or perhaps graduates from courses or working alongside universities or something to find that kind of young emerging talent. Is that a way of doing it, do you think? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So a lot of universities now have some kind of like startup hub that they're trying to do. So again, this is on the networking side, if you don't have a network, go out and try to build one. In terms of trying to build one, you would basically try to find places where you might find the kind of people you're looking to work with. And one of those would be universities where if you if you live around London, I think most of the big universities around London have some kind of startup program where they'll have different uh, like events for startups to present and just for people who are interested in creating their own startups to attend and uh, socialize and meet other people. So going out and building your own network is definitely a way to do it and going through universities because not everyone will have a degree. Not everyone will, even if they have a degree, have the network that's necessary to be able to do it. And so I, I think it's going to come down to being able to build that network. How can you best create an appropriate interview task that will allow a potential employee to demonstrate their skills, but also allow you to evaluate their ability to do the job? What I would suggest, and something that's worked for us, is to try and come up with a simplified version of the actual problem that you're going to solve. It can be quite difficult to do that, but it's better than giving someone a, a very narrow and very specific task because it doesn't allow you or allow that person to really show any kind of creativity. If you, if you, if you ask me a question that requires a yes or no answer, I will give you a yes or no answer. But if you then change it and you ask my opinion before, you know, coming to some kind of conclusion, then I will give you my opinion. And so I think it's a similar thing for these projects. If you're a plumber, you you might not necessarily ask someone, oh, I would like an app that allows my customers to uh, uh, book for me to come out and see them, right? Instead, you could ask the person that you're talking to, like, what kind of app do you think would work well for me and for my business? So you ask more open-ended questions, right? But it's still related to what you're doing. And then for a project that they would do to demonstrate their ability to deliver that, you could say, all right, so could we do a simplified version of that or a kind of a mini version of that? Or you pick out a few things from that and say, could you do that? And then get them to deliver something that's a miniature version of of the real problem. And that way it keeps everybody on, on point, right? So you're getting something that kind of demonstrates to you that they have an idea of what you're looking for. 
and they also get to explore the problem space and figure out if they're interested. Probably one of the worst things that you could have happen is for someone to join uh, because they think the project is going to be interesting, but then uh, halfway through, they lose interest. <laughs> that would be the worst thing for, for you to, to have happen, yeah. right? Um, and so it's worth uh, it's worth not just you being happy before a project starts, but for whoever is joining you on this journey, right? Because it's it's a long road and it's tough. So when the going gets really tough, you need someone who's going to stick it through with you. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Which brings me to another point about kind of culture and making sure that you have the right people that work for your team. And I've worked with some tech companies who have a very, very intensive recruitment process where they have five or six rounds of interviews. The level of questions is so detailed, so in-depth. And I've worked with other tech companies who pretty much make the decision on the first chat. I'd love to know what your thoughts are about kind of how, how much you involve the rest of your team in the decision that you want to make, given you're the expert, uh, and how much of it are you expecting to evolve through a certain number of rounds of interviews, particularly if it's, I guess, in a sense, you're trying to sell yourself to them as much as you're trying to work out what they've got to offer you. It's tricky. So I'll, I'll tell you what we've done, because uh, I, I couldn't really speak from a non-technical founder's perspective. But one of the things that we initially did was we tried hiring uh, through LinkedIn and uh, a bunch of other job boards. But what we got from that was just people that had uh, a lot of experience with the same programming languages that we were using, but not necessarily having, I think, the ability to reason about the problems that we were having, especially in, in what we're doing. A lot of it is very meta because whereas I think a typical app developer would work specifically on a, an app that solves a specific problem, we are working on an app to build other apps. So it becomes very meta when, when you're working. And what we found was initially a lot of the people that we hired, they they struggled quite a lot to get wrap their heads around some of the stuff that was going on once they actually got into the code. So it ended up that we started working with freelancers on a basis where we would give them uh, a three-month period and we'd say, okay, look, we're not going to give you, you know, X number of rounds of an interview process. We have an initial chat, we explain the problem, we find out more about them. And then if we think they're a potential match for us, then we basically say, okay, if you're happy to proceed, then here's how we will work. You're going to get a specific project when you join, and we're going to expect you to deliver that project within three months. If you don't deliver the project, then basically that that would be the automatic end of the contract. And what this did for us was it allowed us to be able to evaluate people over time and basically whilst they were working on the actual problem. The caveat to this is it can get quite long because if you spend, you know, two, three months working with someone and it turns out actually they can't do the job, then you know, it, it, you've just spent three months. And in a startup environment where you need to uh, move quickly, that can become a problem. But it really does help in finding, I think, I don't want to say higher quality, but people who are more qualified for the scenario that you have. And it roots out a lot of the people that just won't make the cut, I think. Uh, but it is a, a long process to get to that end result. And that's what's worked for us. And over the years, we've ended up basically taking on freelancers, giving them this kind of setup. And through that, we've had people that have stopped with us now 
basically since we were founded, we've had, uh, I think we've had one freelancer that's been there from the start and he went through this process and we've had a few more that we've hired as, as a result of going through this process as well. And it, it works out really well for us um, from a quality perspective and making sure that that person is able to do the job. Um, and I think it works out better for them as well because it, it, it becomes incredibly uh, stressful for people when you're constantly asking them to deliver something that they're not able to. And while some people might be willing to learn given uh, enough time, it, it does get quite daunting and stressful, especially in a high-paced startup environment where we need to move quickly. And if someone is there that's not delivering, that can have a massive impact on both the, the company and the wider team because they start affecting other people's work as well. So in terms of remuneration... What terms are you employing people with? Are you hiring them on daily rates, for example? And what kind of incentives are you offering? We've actually done a mixture. Uh, at the beginning, we were mostly just using freelancers. And so uh, everyone that started were starting as contractors. They would come in and those three months would just be a three-month contract. And if we decided, both of us, that we were going to move forward, they'd get an employment contract that would then you know, become a normal employee. Uh, but for the initial three months, they would join as a, a a contractor, basically, for the three-month period that we're having this trial for. Um, we've done, uh, over time, basically, the uh, hourly rates we've done weekly and monthly. Um, we've not actually had any other incentives set up for, for that three-month period. But I think implicitly from our process is that once you have gotten past the three months as a uh, as an early employee then you are basically set up to get some kind of share options in the company move forward uh, moving forward and we've got um, a share pool that we've set up to be able to uh, help incentive incentivize and keep key employees on board um, and so the, the, the implication basically once we're going, when we're going through that process is that once you become a full-time employee, you then get access to some of the uh, shares that are reserved in that share pool for our key employees. We would like anyone that helps us to get to the goal to receive fair compensation for, for the work and, and help that they put in to get to that point. Um, but... At the end of the day, there, there is only uh, so many options in, available in the company, right? And for every piece that's given away, if that person leaves and then they uh, take those and, you know, perhaps the person was there for, for the full two years and so they get to keep those. But then if let's imagine, for, to keep the number simple, that that person had 1%, you know, and we hire uh, 10 people, so we've given 10% away and all 10 of them leave. That's 10% of the company that's gone and, and we don't get back, right? So I think the better thing in my mind is that we offer some alternative compensation that perhaps could be negotiated at the beginning of the contract. Or if, if you uh, hand in your resignation, it depends on how long you've been there, etc. So we'd work out some kind of scheme to say, okay, you know, we, we gave you 1%, um, but because you're leaving early, obviously uh, we want you to feel compensated beyond the everyday pay that you would have gotten. But that wouldn't be exactly giving you a one-for-one one of whatever the, the shares are, are worth at the time you leave. 
it would have to be something that we negotiate. And again, I don't have a concrete answer because we haven't done this yet. I literally just made that one up on the spot. But I think it's a good idea. <laughs> and it, it's something that we might explore. Do you sense that offering equity is a must-have when recruiting tech people into your team? When I worked in startups, uh, what was it six, seven years ago when I last worked in a startup, uh, I think it was a bigger deal back then. But a lot of people now they're not actually planning on sticking around for that long. So it doesn't matter to them as much. I think a lot of people that we speak to are interested in, you know, learning and uh, being able to use some of the tech that we're using. And for them, it doesn't matter so much whether they stick around and get to keep those or not. If they get to learn something and work with some cool tech, that's enough for a lot of people that we're speaking to at the moment. Um, but there are still people who they are coming in with the mindset that I'm going to spend, you know, five years of my life on this. I would like it to be worth it. And so it, it is a mix. But I think majority of people that we're, we're speaking to right now, it doesn't really matter for them. Not that much anyway. That's really interesting. It, it's amazing how these things shift, isn't it? And they kind of go in waves and, and people want different things at different times. I, I think it's great that people are actually looking for the experience and not necessarily just thinking about the big you know, unicorn moment that we all dream about. But I, I was also wondering, in terms of diversity of the kind of people you're recruiting, how are you finding that in the market at the moment? Are you able to bring in a diverse workforce, not just in terms of, of race, but also in terms of um, you know, thinking and approach and, and culture? This one's tricky. For us, we because we started with freelancers, um, it, it was easier to find uh, diversity, both in terms of race, gender, and uh, different backgrounds and their thinking and so on. But one of the things that's slightly changed is that over the years, you know, it's become, I think, more conscious for people to consider diversity, especially when it comes to like uh, the race aspect. That is probably the, the most challenging part of it in terms of diversity for us. If it's finding diversity in terms of uh, people's backgrounds, you know, the kind of things that they've done, that's been relatively easy for us because we've, we started out with basically digging through this freelancer pool. Um, and so it, it's relatively easy to, to be able to get diversity from that perspective. From a, a, a race perspective, it's it's been a lot harder. I think I'm from a, a diverse background myself. Um, I was born in Jamaica. I've been in the UK, I think now, maybe 15 years or so. And especially around the, the network, a lot of my network, most people that I know are black. A lot of them, 99% of them, I would say, are not in the tech space. So when we started, I knew nobody in tech. It's just the people that, that I happen to work with from previous jobs. The tech space in general is predominantly white. And that's not just in the UK, but I think globally, I don't actually know what the statistics are on, on this, but I think that's the case. And it's it's really challenging to be able to find diversity in terms of our race or gender, because women and non-white people are seriously missing in the space. The, the proportions just don't add up. The numbers just don't add up. And I don't think it's something that is going to get solved within the lifetime of our company, certainly. I think it's fundamentally a numbers problem where let's imagine that we were hiring right now and 100 people applied. Let's say of that 100, 
10 of them would be non-white, right? Whether it's uh, Asian, Black, or any, anything else. And imagine that of that 100, we would only have hired, you know, 20% out of that. But because the non-white 10 that I mentioned earlier is already starting at 10% of the 100, the chances of them being hired is so slim. And it's one of those things where, you know, I'm not going to hire someone just because they're black. If they can't do the job, then they're useless to me. They're useless to the business. So there's no point in, in doing that. So I think when people discuss like race, especially when it comes to diversity, they need to probably look more at getting more people into the workforce that are from a diverse background uh, racially or uh, from a gender perspective, because the numbers just don't work. And I think that's the fundamental challenge when it comes to uh, race level uh, diversity. And are you seeing that shifting though, or are you just seeing it's been kind of the same when you started your first startup as to what you see now, or is it, are you seeing, are you seeing any kind of progression there at all? I think we have seen progress. When I started, all of the people that I knew in tech were white. Nowadays, there are a fair number of pretty popular or well-known figures that I know that are either Asian or Black or you know some other race. And so I think that's changed, but that could well just be from, from my perspective. I don't know what the actual numbers are, but it does seem to have gotten better. And if the number of people that are from diverse backgrounds actually increase, then you start to see more of them. And by seeing more of them, you then encourage and motivate other people of the same you know, race to be able to get into tech. And it becomes a, a cycle that hopefully is, is a good one and increase those numbers over time. I think that is happening, but that's again from my perspective, because if I compare, you know, who I know in tech now compared to even five years ago, there are a lot more people that are from diverse backgrounds that I would basically listen to or look at what they're doing and trying to get inspiration from for, you know, different tech or whatever it might be. And then in terms of actually finding those people, so you mentioned earlier about LinkedIn not being necessarily the place where you're going to find the sort of people that you might want to hire for your platform. Is there any recommendation that you have for other founders who are looking to find the right people? They're only thinking of LinkedIn, then maybe there's some job boards they'd go to, or there would be maybe a sort of, is there a, is there a space you'd recommend that you'll find loads of engineers hanging out? Where do you best place your advert if you were going to be advising somebody else who's trying to find the kind of level of talent you know they need? I think... I would look at events where those people are likely to be and you go attend those events. I find that works better than placing ads on a job board. So it could be going to uh, like a university event, like we mentioned, or there are now lots of meetups based on different technologies attending those. So if you're looking to find people to network with, a lot of the people that attend those will be doing it after work, etc. But it's a great way to meet those people who could potentially put you in touch with someone else that might fit the profile of what you're after. And especially if you go to the tech-focused one. So, you know, if, if you, for example, let's say as a non-technical founder, you've hired a developer and they've produced a prototype and they've done it with a certain language framework or some platform, then attending the meetups that are related to those technologies will then open up the pool of people that you have access to. That's basically working in those related technologies. So that's what I would suggest, actually, rather than posting on job boards. And presumably, being part of the OVH startup program, you met a load of people that were 
interesting, interested, connected. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, about what you actually found in terms of meeting and extending your network? Yeah, absolutely. So OVH has been incredibly good, not just with events, but in, in general, the, the service, good quality events that they run. So we've met quite a few people, a few of them who are basically now, you know, constantly in contact with us. So it's been interesting uh, from that perspective to be able to broaden our networks and and the OVH events uh, tends to bring together uh, a broad range of people, not just, you know, uh, technically minded people, but uh, whoever is interested in, in startups, um, I think you'll find at OVH events. And so from that perspective, it's been very good for us to uh, take part as well. It's great to hear that the um, startup program has so many benefits and everyone we speak to seems to be really enjoying that collaboration and connection and really expanding not just their network, but also their horizons and ideas, exchanging and that sort of thing. You're absolutely right. Courtney, we ask all our guests to give three tips to listeners. And I'd love to know what three tips you would give other entrepreneurs about tech recruitment. Quick thing. <laughs> so three tips, I think, for recruitment. Find somebody that you can trust. It's a lot of work and oftentimes you know, you need someone who's willing to stay in the trenches with you, basically, when the going gets tough. That's the first one, I would say, having having really good people around you that will, will stick it through because it's hard and it's a long road. So having someone who's willing to, to see it through and just won't throw in the towel at the first sign of any real challenge, um, that's very important. How you find that person is, a, I think, another conversation, but I, that's what I'd recommend as the first one. Then for the, for the second one, I think find, find, find what makes you focus because oftentimes it, it's quite easy when you're hiring to hire someone and, you know, they will come in, they have their own ideas and it distracts you. It distracts you from what you need to focus on, on delivering. So when you're hiring, Try and get someone in with a clear view that, you know, this is why you're coming. This is what we need help with. And yes, they can come with their own ideas, but those ideas shouldn't distract you away from uh, delivering on whatever it is you've set out to deliver. The third one would be regardless of basically who you hire, their opinion is important, but the customer's view is probably more important. So when people come in and you get them to work on something new, before you roll that out to everyone, try and get it to a few select customers first, get their opinions on it and get that uh, new hire to iterate on it. Because that will also help you to figure out how that person takes feedback. And usually the the harshest but the most honest critics are, are your customers, the people who have to basically put up with your products and you know the bugs and issues that you have in your products. So get them not necessarily to in interact directly with the customer, but to take that feedback directly from the customer. And it will help you, especially if you're doing something like what we do with the three-month trial, to figure out how that person handles feedback when it's especially brutal. I've really enjoyed talking to you today and hearing about your platform and your experiences in tech recruitment and look forward to hearing about all your successes as you scale. Thank you for having me on today as well. Yourself and OVH Cloud has been great. And it was a pleasure to be here and to talk to you today. And I hope somebody out there learned something from this or it was useful to someone out there. Don't miss our next episode. 
where I'll be chatting to Chris Holscher, founder of Holscher One, the leading experts in industry analyst relations, and finding out why founders should be harnessing the hidden power of IAR early in their startup journey. You've been listening to Supercharge Your Startup from OVH Cloud, who are already providing data sovereign cloud solutions to 1.6 million customers worldwide. Whether you are a startup or a scale-up, we are with you every step of the way to accelerate your business with a specialist range of member initiatives. For more details about our startup program and to start your company journey onto our cloud today with up to 100,000 euros in free cloud credits and technical consultations, find us now at startup.ovhcloud.com. Your success is our success. Together, we're stronger and faster.